0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ron Small, and welcome to the fifth episode of this podcast on SwayProductions.com and on iTunes. Many thanks for all the feedback and criticisms and questions. Uh, I really appreciate the the response to the show, and I especially want to thank our last guest, the wonderful Jason Wingrove, for giving us a shout-out at the tail end of the truly great R.C. podcast, in which he co-hosts with Mike Seymour. I think it was uh, episode 105, and in the show notes for that episode, uh, in which he mentioned the SpotCast. Very much appreciated, and Jason was a fantastic guest, so please check him out on the RC and on episode 4 of the SpotCast. One quick note, I'm going to try to answer at least one question or point of criticism at each intro point. This is a bit outdated at this point, but three different people who I don't think have any relation to each other, other than being humans, and uh, I think they're all male as well, wrote in to tell me that they felt I interrupted my first guest, Adam Lizagor, at uh, too many points during the first two episodes of the show. I've mentioned this to a couple friends of mine, that the interesting thing about that is that I was consciously telling myself before the interview to not interrupt Adam. Because I, I realize that that is, is one of the things I can't stand about certain interviewers. And I told myself uh, internally, I wasn't having a conversation with myself, uh, but I told myself to be sure to keep my mouth shut as much as possible. So you can only imagine uh, what it must be like to talk to me regularly when I'm not recording myself and, and trying to be on good behavior. Anyhow, I do uh, apologize to Adam if I cut in too much. And I feel like I've worked to, uh, to remedy that. In the past couple episodes, I'm truly a work in progress, everyone, uh, as a human being and interviewer. So there's that, and and thank you sincerely to the three people for writing in to point that out. I I genuinely appreciate that and any criticism to improve this show. Beyond that, in regards to Adam's interview, there was a lot of really nice responses from people who enjoyed some of the points in which we were talking about things other than commercial production. So, I appreciate that because it's always a little concerning uh, for me to go off topic. As for me, the topic of this show is the show. On today's interview, I spoke to David Jellison, a commercial director who specializes in dark comedy spots. Uh, he's had a very interesting career, starting out in the 80s metal band Rat, or R A T T, working as an art director for various live shows, and eventually starting at the bottom on music video and commercial sets. He was sort of an all-purpose guy at Propaganda Films, the commercial production company that launched a lot of commercial careers, including Michael Bay and David Fincher. David worked as an AD for about 10 years before getting his first directing gig. I apologize for some of the minor sound issues that occurred during this interview. David was in an office, and you can hear some other people around him. Occasionally, uh, especially prominent, is the voice of one woman in the background. If you do at any point lose interest in the interview, which I don't think you will because David is great, but if you do, uh, you can make a game out of trying to guess what the woman in the background is saying as she pops in and out. At one point I'm pretty sure she says, I got it, which uh, to me leads to a whole host of other questions like, what did she get, and so on. Anyhow, I hope the sound issues don't bother you too much, because David is really truly a great guest and has a lot of interesting and pretty amusing things to say about the industry and here is David Jellison you've worked as an AD for about 10 years and and you worked with a lot of really legendary directors in commercials David Fincher and Michael Bay in particular at the time they were doing some of the more high-end and and creative commercial work out there what did you take away from uh, from those experiences and and running those sets
1: interestingly those guys were sort of the higher profile names I work with but I also work with the guys maybe less high-profile names, uh, like Paul Giroux and Peter Smiley, who are doing jobs that had budgets of three to five million dollars. I mean, it, it, traveling, you know, literally from Alaska to Antarctica. So, there was there were just a lot of, and these were for cigarette uh, commercials that were specifically designed for European television, and the cigarette commercial, like Lucky Strike and Marlboro. And there would be two and three minute long pieces. They're like a short film. Um, but, what I, you know, speaking specifically, one thing uh, about David's venture in particular, he was, he was the smartest guy in the room. I mean, at yeah. in an incredibly young age, he knew more about everybody else's job than they did. He was also, he came out of ILM, you know, and so he was so much more savvy about, the post world. So he would try to explain stuff to us. <laughs> and honestly, a lot of it would just go over your head because he tried to explain how the shot would be. And he was in one job in particular, um, the Stevie, Stevie, uh, Steve Winwood video that won, you know, whatever best video of the year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I remember just, you know, he would describe the shots and they were, they're incredibly clever and complex. And it's like, it was very tough to understand his vision until you actually literally saw it unfold before your eyes. Right. Because he was just that gifted. Uh, and Michael Bay sort of on the opposite side uh, of the coin, sort of just he, he made his mark you know, with the uh, Miller light spots and sort of the bigger, uh, bigger, broader, more sort of eye candy oriented.
0: I mean, and
1: it's interesting if you watch sort of watch their careers uh, as they have evolved, Michael Bay, you know, ending up with sort of these mega films like Transformers and David with films like Dragon Tattoo, it really, those styles coalesced at the beginning. They really are reflective of who they are as filmmakers. And that was evident even back in their commercial days.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, you know, David Fincher still does some commercial spots. I I don't know that Michael Bay. Does those anymore? But even if you look at like his recent stuff, like the uh he did an Adidas spot, I think um a couple years ago, it's still yeah. in that kind of style that he yeah. uh, he's been doing.
1: And that's one thing I'll say. Although Michael Bay does do Victoria's Secret,
0: right? He's that's the one brand he, he <laughs> stayed with. Funny. I mean, that's a great place for him to meet women, probably. <laughs> yeah.
1: So there's that. But um yeah, the the one and the one thing I will say for filmmakers out there is, is, is it's, it's it, it kind of a challenge because you, what you want is you want to be, have a, a, create a brand for yourself, really. Ultimately, you are a brand. It's like, oh, that looks like, you know, if you if you see a David Fincher movie, if you did not know who the director was, you would walk out there going, God, that looks exactly like a David Fincher movie. And same with Michael Bay. You know, they created an identity for themselves. And I think that's one thing I would suggest to artists. The challenge is in our business. In order to stay busy, you have to you have to be able to do a wide variety of things. You know, I've done everything from cars to pharmaceuticals to broad comedy to subtle comedy and everything in between. Um, I'm known for it, and I like the most is sort of the darker comedy, more subtle, nuanced, uh, ironic humor. But there, you know, I. I like the challenge, quite frankly, of, of doing something that is not necessarily uh, in you know within my normal comfort zone. Because it, I like I like stretching out, and I think most directors would tell you the same thing. I like I like a challenge, and I like you know exploring a new side of my you know aesthetic. Quite frankly.
0: So, how important do you think it is to um, to kind of have a, a style that you're? Uh you really specialize in. I mean, th- this is what I hear a lot: that a lot of people are, um, you know, that when, especially when you're starting out, that you should sort of pick a genre and stick to that genre and kind of be the the expert of that genre.
1: Yeah. Well, initially, you definitely have to be, and, and this is sort of the, it is the way, the nature of the business. It's you, know, you will get pigeonholed, and that's just how it goes. And in, in our industry, it's actually. The stratification is incredibly specific. Like I do dialogue comedy, but it's not just dialogue comedy. It's slightly darker dialogue comedy, smaller performances, more ironic, more nuanced. You know, it's, it they really narrow it down. And even with that narrow of a description, there are still two hundred guys who do what I do, right? So it's like, and to your point, yes, I think when you start out you're going to create a real three spots, five spots. They all should feel like they're from the same artist, flowing from the same, you know, cerebral pen. Because if you do one spot that looks, you know, that's sort of a, a pretty picture slice of life. And one spot that's like really aggressive car work. And the next spot is, you know, broad comedy. It's like, well, and I think some people would do that to prove to people that I can do everything. It's like, that's fine later on in your career, but right now what I want to do, what I want to know is what you do the best. What am I going to hire you for?
0: So once you've established yourself as the dark comedy guy, from there uh, do you look for opportunities to start stretching in other genres?
1: You work with agencies and, you know, and this happens to everybody and they'll go, you know, this isn't, You know, they'll call you up and say I, this isn't necessarily exactly what you do, but I'd like to see your take on it. So the agencies will actually look at your material. I, interestingly, my, you know, if you look at my reel, it's, uh, I, I get a surprisingly large amount of stuff that doesn't, that's completely opposite of my reel. And that is because the agency creatives want to hire a director who's who is going to look at their project with a different perspective. Like, for example, I do a lot of Nickelodeon stuff, which is upbeat and positive, family, cool. But also, they, the, the creatives I work with there like the fact that I will look at it and put a little bit of a twist into it. And they're also, you know, and they're great collaborators and they're a ton of fun to work with. But that's, that's, how, you, that's how you grow as an artist and how, that's how you develop your career. Because if you just stay with one particular style and that, and that is it, at some point, the newer, younger, faster version of you is going to come up, and it'll be over. And if I can get any advice to young directors, it's like you are 100 percent responsible for your own career. You know, the people, you have reps, and you have executive producers, you have, you know, production companies supporting you. Have everything at your disposal. But really, the reason that people are going to come back is because of you, and what can you bring to it, and what is the shooting experience like with you? That's another big part of it. You know, is it fun, are you collaborative, are you smart, are you upbeat, do you offer a lot of ideas? It's like, because the competition now is so tremendous, you really have to, and I mean there's just an incredible amount of talented people out there, there really is. And so I think to that end, as a director coming up, you really have to to, uh, work incredibly hard to make your mark these days.
0: Tell me a bit about how you got started. I worked for the band Van Halen as an art
1: director and lighting uh, designer. I started working uh, in the photography world back then, taking pictures of the band. I bought two Nikon cameras and, uh, you know, we toured the world. So I was taking photographs sort of, you know, around, around the planet, literally. And then with the advent of the music video era, we started doing uh, music videos for the band and I became really interested in that side of it. Uh, and then I met a storyboard, a guy who was a storyboard artist at the time, John Dahl, and he had, he and I became really good friends. And I, he said, look, if you ever want to leave rock and roll and get into the film business, let me know. Because I'll put you on, he, he was directing low budget uh, R&B music videos. So I said, okay, so, uh, couple of years later, I called him up and uh, he put me on a job. I made 50 bucks a day, worked about, uh, you know, shot all night downtown LA, two nights in a row. And that was it. I was hooked. And um, the, the, very shortly thereafter, I started working with the, the people of Propaganda, which is the company that started venture and Michael Bay and many others. And, uh just the great thing about that era quite frankly was that you got to uh for 50 bucks a day you got to do whatever whatever that they needed you to do so i had a background in photography so they put me in as a location manager and a location scout and i had lighting background so they would have me uh, do lighting design for them uh i also worked as a second ad i'd work as a pa uh, I also went to Vidal Sassoon, so I had a hair license, so I would do hair, like on Paula Abdul music videos. Really the, the whole goal was just to stay employed, and if you're making 50 bucks a day, you know, I would work between 25 and 28 days a month, you know, and love it, and it, it worked with a wide variety of really talented people, and uh, it was the best, was sort of the best learning experience you could ask for. And then I became a, I very quickly, I sort of knew that I wanted to be in the uh, a first AD because coming out of rock and roll, that seemed like an easy transition because the, the sort of the amount of logistics that I was dealing with on tour uh, and also sort of people management skills, I thought that would translate very uh, neatly over into the film world. And it did, and I was a first AD for, uh, DGA, First AD for 10 years. And during that time, I got to work, you know, and I have to say, although it's not a normal or natural transition to go from First AD to a director, for me it was because I got to work with the most, you know, the most talented people in the business, quite frankly, and um, learn, you know, learn from them. And you also learn how to do, you you work with people maybe not so talented and you learn, you know, how to not do things as well. So you really see, the range of successes and failures, and that'll help shape your own perspective on storytelling and execution and logistics, and it really was incredibly beneficial. Um, And then in 1999, uh, I shot a spec spot courtesy of the the people at Tool of North America. They put me in touch with some people at uh, uh, OWN&P, which is a large a pretty decent sized agency out of San Francisco and I did one spec spot
0: and that was the Spring Street detective spot that people can see at your website jellisonfilmgang.com. That's it,
1: that's exactly it and I so put $30,000 of my own money in it shot you know one 16-hour day three cameras 36 setups blah 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 and uh, nothing happened with it for a while and then about Three months later, they actually used that spec spot to uh, win an account. They won an $8 million dollar account using that as a you know, as sort of a creative, creative leverage, if you will. Yeah, and really and then they said, well, since that worked, we're now going to allow you to bid on other jobs. And I said, great. And, and I pitched on maybe three or four campaigns that were that they were doing over the next three months and didn't win any of them. And then finally I got, uh, a job called fog dog. Uh, I pitched him on it. I flew myself out to Moab, Utah. I I'd, I'd shot in Moab before and uh, as a AD and I was really familiar with the landscape and I gave them a, basically it was a book, like about a 60 page treatment, uh, maybe 20 pages for each spot. There were three spots and, uh, describing describing detail, how to execute it. And, and, uh, You know how the narrative would go and that was it. They said, okay. So now I had a job and uh, I ran it through Tool and they hired me as a director
0: uh, right after that. Uh, When you're hired onto a production company like that as a director, do you get paid to ever work on treatments and things like that or are you only paid when a job comes in?
1: No, you only get paid when a job comes in. Basically, back then, maybe half of the jobs you would do in 2000 half the jobs you would do you'd write a treatment for and the other half you would either you would Uh, win it by the strength of your uh conference call with the agency and by the strength of your reel there would be no treatment Uh, in this day and age treatments are are an automatic there it's it's a given if you are unless you are a single bid and the agency specifically says we don't need a treatment you always write a treatment so, and they can vary in size and scale and depth, depending on how big the job is and how
0: you know and how complex it is. And how much preparation do you usually do for treatment?
1: I would say, if you're just talking talking about that's a, a single spot, I will write a uh, in terms of the amount of copy I'll write, it'll be eight written pages, and by the time you add all the images in, that'll take up another eight. So most of my treatments for a single 30-second spot are between 14 and 16 pages. The key is really listening to them on the call and understanding what it is they're looking for. Because they'll tell you on the call. I mean, that's one of the sort of the the secret, non-secrets of the industry is that the people of the agency have spent a long time working on this idea.
0: What do you prefer for your approach? Would you rather um... Not be given a lot of details and, and kind of be, uh, be able to fill it in yourself, yeah. or would you rather be given, yeah. uh, you know, kind of be given everything?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, I like both, quite frankly. I like, I appreciate people that have a really strong idea about what they want. And then that allows me to go in and, and sort of, you know, add creative flavoring on top of that, if you will. And I also like creating something out of whole cloth where they just give you, and for example, that Spring Street my very first spec spot they had three other spots they liked that spot was a sentence and the sentence was um, detectives you know it, it, detectives go it, to investigate a crime they go into the apartment investigate a crime really uh, and then realize that the apartment is a great deal and uh, don't care about the crime that was the whole thing so there's no detail about you know murder or bodies or any of the other stuff and so I got to sort of add all that, um, and the agency obviously contributed creatively as we went along. But that's an example of you know creating something out of whole cloth. It, to me, it's 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 just as fun either way.
0: And and how did that come about exactly? Getting to do that that spot, how did you get hooked in with uh, with Tool?
1: Well, I I was uh, the first AD for Eric Joyner and Scott Burns from literally their. First, first AD they ever worked with. They started the company, I think, in 1994. So I did, you know, every job that I was available for with them, I did. They were very loyal and hired me on uh, a lot of work. And I taught, you know, and I was personal friends with both of them, still am. And I talked to Eric Joyner and I said, Look, I really wanted, would like to be a director. And, and I presented some ideas to him. I had three sort of spec scripts. And he said, you know, why don't you get something from an agency, because at least that way, then you'll develop a, a relationship with an agency. Because if you just do a spec script based on your own idea, what your perception of a Gatorade spot or a Pepsi spot should be, that's fine. But you, you haven't really, it, it doesn't benefit you as much as getting an idea from an agency. Because then you're actually working with people from an agency and yet you're actually understanding how the collaborative process works with other creative people. So I would you know, say, uh, I always suggest that to everybody that wants to come up in this business, don't do spec spots that are just arbitrary based on your, you know, whatever uh, whim you have of, of what, a, what a, you know, what a set up spot should be. It's find an agency. Talk to them, find out what their needs are. You know, maybe they're pitching it. I mean, mine was ideal. They were pitching. A, they wanted to pitch a couple of uh, companies in San Francisco uh, based on this sort of um, this premise they created. And it, and that's really that really helped significantly. Um, so anyway, Eric said, "Look, I, I'll you know if somebody asks me to do a spec spot, I'll turn them. I'll I'll steer it over to you." So. Literally a month later, he was doing a job with this agency or WNNP and they approached him after the job and said, Hey, we'd like, are you interested in doing a spec spot? Eric said, uh, I'm busy, but my first AD is interested and, uh, you should talk to him. So that's how it began. I talked to him and sort of went back and forth over a two month period and, um, uh, you know, the idea got sort of fleshed out and. We started scouting the locations, and I rounded up my crew, and and uh, we went at it. And it was it was a lot. I say it was it was incredibly fun and incredibly stressful all at the same time because it was really, you know, we had cranes and steady cam we had a total of four cameras, and mean you know, it was just a ton going on, hyper ambitious. One thing that I do, and especially for something like that, is I actually took still photographs of every. Sort of every frame, use and put some, you know, put, uh, had stand ins. Anybody, you know, whoever I get to stand in, stand in. So I would compose a, I would take a photograph actually of what I thought the shot would look like with people in it. And then in addition to drawing my own storyboards, based on the location, I also put those pictures up. So it's like, you, I I think in a situation like that, the, the more of a blueprint you can give yourself, uh, the better off you are.
0: What advice would you give to someone who's choosing what brand to make their spec spot for uh, for instance, would you suggest making something for a lesser-known brand as opposed to a more popular brand like uh, like Pepsi or something?
1: Well I, you know the, I, I guess the challenge is for people coming out of you know coming out of wherever Art Center or just coming into this business in general is to find to cultivate a, a relationship with an, a, a younger agency creative, who, you know, who he or she also want to sort of move up the food chain and want to do a spot for a client. Say, just as an example, say Shia Day has a microbrewery, you know, a dog head beer, whatever it is. So they have a microbrewery and that microbrewery only does print, right? And these young creatives go, boy, we'd like to do a commercial for these guys, but they, these guys, we can't afford a commercial and we can't afford to run one. And they say, well, we'd like to create one for you anyway. And those are the kind of, that, that is the kind of ideal situation you want. You want, you want agency creatives who are hungry, who want to, who want to advance their careers uh, to work with you and you create the, you know, this spec spot and then they will uh push it towards the client. And if it's good and if it works, uh, then the client will go, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and, and put this on the air in a couple, you know, a couple of our smaller markets. So that way you, you and it doesn't cost them a ton of money if they're gonna and I specifically chose a microbrewery because they're generally regional. So if you have a a microbrewery that is, you know, like Golden State is one here in Los Angeles, you can run it on, you know, LA networks, it's affordable. And so suddenly now you have a spot that you shot that's on the air. And with the advent of the 5D and Final Cut, it, it right. it's producing uh, content that looks good and can go on the air is a lot less expensive than it was 10 years ago.
0: Now some of the directors that you AD'd for went on to do features. Is that something that you would like to do?
1: You know I thought, I, I thought it was something that I want to do, but I'll be honest with you, I actually love what I do. I really do. And I I pitched on some features, and one of the things, especially now, much like advertising, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of years in this business, so I've developed a certain, you know, uh, developed a lot of relationships within the business. But I do know if I left for a year, uh, coming back would be really hard. It's just the nature of the game. And... It's the same way in the feature world. I mean, there are a lot of really great feature directors out there that, that are looking for a job. So when I was pitching on feature jobs, I was competing against guys who had done really tremendous films and had been quite successful. So it was, it was a hell of an uphill battle. And kind of the only genre that they they were ultimately going to give me a shot at was horror. And that's kind of the one genre... I'm just not a huge fan of, you know, and that because horror movies just have a built-in audience and make money and and don't cost much to make. Sure. So that's why you get guys who come out um, like Zack Snyder. is a perfect example. Came out and did. They gave me Amityville Horror, and that made money. And then he had the sort of the street cred then to get to do 300, and that of course blew up the box office. So
0: it was Dawn of the Dead. I think that he did. That yeah, what yeah, yeah. He did Dawn of the Dead. I, I, I know Amityville Horror was done by another uh, commercial director and I think that's you know Michael Bay's um company that is uh you know producing those um I forget the name of it but yeah you know they did this whole thing where they were uh, remaking uh horror films from the 70s and hiring commercial directors to direct them like yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all that. Yeah,
1: I think which again incredibly successful. Yeah. Uh I'm looking it up now. Oh, Andrew Douglas. There you go.
0: Another, right, right. And then Samuel Bear, I think, just did, Sam uh, Bear did Nightmare on in Elm Street. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they used, to, you know, you. That is the only genre that not only has a, a built-in audience, but an incredibly loyal built-in audience.
0: Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, even the even the crappy ones. Though. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> It's like porn.
1: Yeah exactly well that's that's what it is that's what I was talking to the, the guys at Fox when I was pitching on the last horror film um, they said you know look this film's going to cost three million dollars and we project it will make twelve million worldwide because horror, horror films uh, unlike a lot of uh, films specifically comedy uh, translate internationally because you know horror is universal so that way they're almost you know, they're guaranteed to make their money back and it's a really safe bet to uh, to put a, a a commercial guy on there because you know you're going to win. Yeah, Marcus Nesvell did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that thing just killed it at the box office. So yeah, there's and and again, Marcus Nesvell another very successful uh, commercial market.
0: So you've been directing uh, TVCs for quite a while, and and I'm curious what what changes have you noticed as a result of the of the way we consume our media now as opposed to how we did in the 90s. Well, it's, it's vastly different. Um, what well, with TiVo and DVR? Right, well, I,
1: I remember when, when that first came out, the initial reaction was, oh my God, our industry is, you know, we're doomed, right? Because people, are, and they actually, there an early DVR came out that would bypass commercials in 30 second chunks. So you could just push the button repeatedly and never see the content. Well, needless to say advertisers buck that trend really fast. So what what they discovered is even when you speed through a commercial, you retain the essential message, right? No matter how fast you speed through it. Because we are also as you know media consumers, we are taught our brains have now been taught to absorb information at a much faster rate. You know, if you look at early the early Videos in MTV, a three minute song would have like 12 cuts in it. It's incredibly uh, slow paced. And then that MTV, sort of the quicker editing kind of drove advertising's uh, quicker editing approach. And then that is translated into some films as well. But the, I guess the biggest difference is the budgets have shifted dramatically as a result of the technology changes. With the with the 5D in particular, that really that really changed the entire language and landscape of filmmaking. Because so now it's accessible. Uh, everybody has a Vimeo channel. Everybody has a YouTube channel. Everybody, you know, it, you know, six years, kids in sixth grade are, are making movies and uh, for their friends. I mean, it's and it's great and it's it's fantastic. But again, it just sort of now it it has with that accessibility. It has now lowered the prices across the board for everything, as well. You know, with uh, in, in terms of the budgets that we see.
0: So, what is a typical budget for one of your uh, like thirty-second spots?
1: Um, right now, it varies anywhere between one hundred and ten thousand, all the way down to forty thousand, and really just sort of depending on what the uh, what the needs of the spot are.
0: And where, what do they used to be when you were starting? When out? I started this business.
1: Average thirty second spot was about two hundred forty grand, between two two twenty and two forty. And then, uh, you know, over the years they stair stepped down. And, and the thing about this is it's not, it's going to continue to, the, the prices are going to continue to drop. I mean that's just the nature of commerce. Um, so that's one of the things. And obviously, having so many platforms to view media on now uh it's it's harder to have a commercial resonate with people if you want to really grab eyeballs you have to do something this daring and unusual because the amount of material the amount of media that people digest every day is staggering you know it's i remember you know, there was an era where if there was a commercial that ran on Saturday night live or the tonight show, that commercial would have it. people would talk about it. The commercial would have a lifespan of months, if not years, you know, the classic cases of, you know, where's the beef, the Clara Peller commercial that for Wendy's, I mean, my God, that it resonated throughout the marketplace and ran forever. So now at the rate at which we digest content, it's, to have a spot that comes out that really grabs your attention and and uh, resonates, it's it's incredibly challenging, you know. So that's I think that's sort of the incumbent upon all the creatives out there is like, what are you going to do to make people slow down and spend thirty seconds or even fifteen seconds watching this commercial? And that's what we you know we rack our brains on that every day. And I, it, one of the, my firm beliefs, I tell agency creatives, is like. We have to grab them in the first shot, you know. We have to grab them from the opening frame because they will just click right past you. Uh, you know, they, they'll speed past you on the DVR if you have a, a clip that's playing on the on the web. They'll click, you know, they'll click right past that as well. So you really, what is it that you're going to put up there? What's your opening frame? What is your uh, it, that's really going to make the person watch?
0: Currently, the uh, ads that I've noticed that have gained a lot of traction have been, uh, as an example, the the Old Spice ad, which aired sure. during the Super Bowl, uh, was so clever that people sought it out online. And Widen and Kennedy, the uh, the agency behind that, really created a whole online network of material based around that character. Right.
1: The I mean, that campaign, to me, uh, is the benchmark of how media, how to exploit really successful media in this era. They... Uh, Wyden and Kennedy came up with this concept, they gave it to Tom Kuntz, the director, and gave him enough money to execute it and make it brilliant, and it airs on the Super Bowl, and then from that, they created this incredible marketing campaign, viral marketing campaign, that just maximized the impact of that, and also, I mean, here's all, I think they... Increased the sales of the brand by twenty five percent within the first two months, which is a staggering uh, slice of success. Yeah,
0: you know, I don't even like uh, the way Old Spice smells, but I I had the urge like the other day to buy it.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and that's the 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 creative team uh, was at South by Southwest, and they gave an hour long presentation on how they first of all how they, they the spot came to be, and then. What they did to uh, increase its impact, because a lot of times if you do a spot like that, then the next one is, is sort of a derivation of that that's not nearly as good, and then there's two more, and then that's it, and you don't care. But what they did is they expanded it. Other than that, they created a, a entire pers- you know the persona around Mustafa, their star. Yep. And really, just a smart execution and smart follow through. And that's, I think that's a perfect example of what you need to do today in the media planet to really
0: make an impression. Uh, also, uh, they they have another kind of um, thing going on with Old Spice, where the the series of commercials with um, uh, I forget the actor's name. Um, Terry, oh, Terry Crews. The, uh, have you the, seen those? The brain explosion. Yeah, Hilarious. yeah, genius. Yeah. yeah, they're great. And and there's a whole series with him as well. And I think those are more more uh, online, and they're directed by the. The guys who do Tim and Eric, but yeah, yeah. And it, I mean,
1: first of all, anatomically, that guy—you're going to watch for five seconds just because he looks so amazing, right? And then the things that they have, and also it's just so bombastic, and his he's, his delivery is so funny and so over the top, right? And then his, you know, and then the brain flies out of his head. But that—that's an example though of, a, of an agency who also allows their creatives to who who are. Not only is the agency not afraid to let their creatives do really edgy, daring work, but the client is willing to let the agency do edgy, daring work, and that's that's the biggest challenge I think that I haven't discussed yet is like there are a lot of smart guys out there, a lot of innovative guys, but what they bump up against is uh, fear, and that's the, the climate, the fear-based climate that we live in in marketing today. Uh, because everybody's, you know, panicking over losing their job, so nobody wants to do anything daring or bold. They want to stay right in the, you know, stay right in the middle in the sort of the mayonnaise vanilla side side of the world at their own peril. Because guess what's going to happen? People aren't going to watch their spots. These guys might keep their jobs for a while, but at some point, you know, they're going to get the numbers back and go, "Oh shit, nobody cares about our product or these commercials." So they may appeal to the 60-year-old CEO, who's incredibly conservative and 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 non-clever, but they're not appe- appealing to their audience, and that's where I think people make a, a, a huge mistake.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting to see the brands that take chances like that, like Skittles, you know, uh, oh, yeah. does some great stuff, and and Old Spice, but uh, it seems more like the brands that will do that are are they're not really associated with a product you need to. Know about necessarily you know the the, the the products are kind of already out there, and it's just Correct. sort of branding themselves as this is the lifestyle or this is the, uh, you know this is that, that what that product means to people, you know kind well, of rebranding.
1: And then, and then you hit on another interesting point too, in the in the world of marketing, is that you're not just you know, beer is beer. Sorry, <laughs> most beer is, but what
0: you're selling it's not going to get you laid.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> beer. Will not equal you going home with the hottest chick in the bar. Never gonna fucking happen. Uh, but what it is is it you're buying into that lifestyle. You're buying it. You're buying into the the idea that they are projecting on you as the consumer. You know, it's like uh, it, and it applies to quite a quite a range of products. Specifically, things like that that are you know, Coke, Pepsi, you know, Gatorade, Red Bull, on and on and on that arguably are, are you know, they're glorified sugar water, but they, through smart marketing, they turn them into uh, the, they invent desire. I mean, it's the classic case We're you know, we are, we are in business of creating desire and that's, that's what you're going to get with those smart people really create that nike tennis shoe versus new balance you know well nike wisely again they were, they were these guys that sort of really maximized the use of celebrity athletes and made their shoe iconic i mean if you looked at the the cost of their shoe versus how much they sell them for it's stunning but you're not you're not paying for the rubber and the laces you're 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 playing you're Paying for the brand and the lifestyle that that brand and the status that that brand projects. Like they what their their latest. I don't know if you saw this. Their Kobe Bryant shoe went on sale a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in I think it was in Portland, and there were riots, like kids beating each other, breaking the doors down because they had a limited amount of the shoe. And that's and that really just speaks to the marketing and the popularity of Kobe Bryant, and nothing about how. Amazing that you actually is.
0: Another spot that was really impactful this year uh, was the Volkswagen ad that Lance Accord did uh, for uh, for the uh, Super Bowl. Um, I, the uh, I think it's called the Force, and it's um, it's the, the kid in the Darth Vader helmet. You know, and this
1: is and this is one thing I I preach to people: a good idea can be explained in one sentence. And you know, I've seen you know very. A few times in my career, not often. A few times I've gotten just one of those. You know, somebody's pitching an idea or sent me an idea, and along with maybe a half dozen others, and the one that one idea jumps off the page. You go, oh, that's it's brilliant. It doesn't take a lot of explanation. A bad idea, on the other hand, takes three or four sentences and a storyboard to support it, and it's still a bad idea. So that you know, you, you can condense that. You know, a mini Darth Vader walks around the house trying to, you know, put his powers on to, to you know, his, his cat and his sister and magically starts up his, his father's car with his father's help. You know, it's sort of like, I think if, you're, if you want to write creatively, one of the things you should look at is how, uh, is what, um, log lines for films. And basically, can your film be explained or described in 25 words or less? And that's what the job of a log line is. And I think in advertising people would benefit if they thought about their commercial like that.
0: How typical is it that you get an idea that you're super excited about?
1: Truthfully, I just <laughs> this is just gonna sound cliche, but I just love I love what I do so much. I'm always excited to get to get a project, regardless of what it is, to be honest with you, because it each one of them is their own, presents their own challenges. Each one I get to work you know, with, with different creative people, and each one of them is like a is, it's a puzzle. You know, you're you're how do you unlock the secrets of this spot and make it really good? And what are the things that you can do uh, in that short time frame with that x amount of money? How how good can you make it? And that's what I, I think to me is always the challenge and always and is the best part about the job. Right. So yeah, sometimes you get ideas and truthfully when you get an idea that is a good idea and has a lot of money to it, where you can really bring out a lot of toys and, and throw a lot, you know uh, uh, throw a lot of weight at it, both financial and creative, then that's exciting. You know, when you get out there using a camera car and a techno crane and a Steady cam and, and a brilliant DP and two operators. I mean, that's that's a ton of fun. Uh, as opposed to, if, you know, you're in a, a kitchen in a house in Sherman Oaks with a 5D and eight guys. So, but I've also had, been in a house in Sherman Oaks with a 5D and eight guys and laughed my ass off because the content was great. So, you know, yeah, the bigger spots are, are I, I do enjoy the opportunity to throw a lot of. Uh, cinematic hardware at a commercial and cash because it's just exciting uh, but it, truthfully the, 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 one of the things that I get most excited about is is working with the the actors and what they bring to it you know I, I work a lot with guys out of the groundlings two of those guys uh, Nat Fax and the other guy, but they wrote um, The Descendants this year I mean, these guys are really the Groundlings guys are incredibly talented writers, and when I cast, I sort of go after guys like that. And you can do a project for no money and have it be fantastic because what they bring
0: to it. What do you do though when, uh, when you don't like the idea? Do, do you do you go? I, I'm going to do my best to make this the best version of this idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it's on. It's 100 on you. You know, I, you know. 12 years ago, when I started doing this. They would give you, you know, you would get several. Honestly, you get several boards a day, you know. And I remember working with the guys who were really high end. They, you know, back in the day, and guys you know, Charles Wittenmeyer and Marcus Stevens, guys who were incredibly busy, and they would get four to six boards a day, and they would just sift through and go. And they call up the executive producer. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to do any of these. And they could be huge jobs. But it was like you—you you had the luxury of choosing back then. Now, to me, it's—you know, I, I, I don't turn down anything because I view it as a, as a creative challenge. I think that's your job as a director to look at every project and say, "How good can this be?" And I think that one of the—and if you are working with a creative agency, and they—they they come to you and go, "Look, you know." This is what it is. It's a MyAlanta commercial, but what can you possibly really do to, to improve it? And, uh, you know, and I've actually been in that very situation. And I, and I uh, you know, I threw, a, we, we threw a lot of, of, of fun ideas at it and eventually made it really cool. So I think it's, with, the, with the ideas that are challenged like that, it just makes you work harder to make them good. But I think it's completely, that's your job. And I think that's one of the fun parts of the job is to, is to take an idea that's, that's very sort of limited and expand upon it and make it a commercial that people want to see.
0: How often now are, are you getting boards? Uh, you mentioned that before they were coming in uh, you know, several a day. What's it like now in, in the current I think, climate? I,
1: what I, I think on average I'm getting about a board a week. And then you you know, and obviously I'm competing against that's the other thing. It's like you're competing against three or four or five other guys who are just as hungry as you are. So you end up uh, you know, you have to throw hard and and try to get everyone. I mean, I'm very I'm very aggressive in terms of of the of the pitching process and with treatments and I really prepare for the calls. I mean you have to you have to put yourself in a position to win and one thing I would say to all directors, you know, the directors coming up in the business is, like, if I get a board, as far as I'm concerned, that is my board to lose. So I have to do everything in my power to get it. You know, it's like if they come to me and my brain's like, well, you you have to win this job and you have to figure out a way to do it. And however much research that requires and however much legwork that requires, and that's what you end up doing.
0: And what's the bidding process like for you? How where are you of the other directors who are bidding uh, against you for that spot?
1: Uh, generally uh and you it's funny in this business you find yourself bidding against a lot of the same guys over over a period of time there's probably you know 20 or th- a pool of 20 or 30 guys that I find myself being against on a regular basis. Uh and I know them and I know their work but sometimes you'll see a guy who who be sort of outside the box and what i always do when i find out who i'm is, is i take a look at their reels and their latest work and see try to figure out what it is in their work that made the agency interested in them as well you know sometimes it's our work is entirely different and i'm like wow this we are not even in the same uh sort of creative world it's interesting the agency would pick somebody like that and someone like me but generally i you know i try to break down what What it it is that uh, the agency likes about them, and what they like about me, and I, you know, try to sort of accentuate my positives.
0: And how do you handle that conference call in terms of preparation?
1: I start drinking early, and by the time I'm on the call, I'm hammered. Uh, (laughs) No, the uh, a lot of times I'll get on calls with people that that I've worked with before, and that's incredibly comfortable. If you're on a call with new people. Uh, it, it can be jarring at first. When I first started doing conference calls, yeah, you start pitching an idea and then you're finished. Like you, You'll talk for a minute and then there'll just be silence. You go, uh, and then the, the natural panic is to try to fill in that silence with more of your bad ideas. So what I've learned is to, you know, to sort of engage the agency as you go along. So if you're talking about something you'll know, ask, it, and you know, what do you guys think of that? Because otherwise, sort of like this call, it becomes, a, it becomes a run-on sentence. And you really want to, as you go through the call, gauge what the agency is thinking about your ideas. That, and also, again, they will tell you what they like and don't like. And they'll tell you what they want and don't want. And the more time the more you make it a conversation, I think the better off
0: you're gonna be. So what initially drew you into dark comedy? You know, I
1: my theory has always been uh, shoot commercials if you want to watch yourself. So and I have a extremely high bar because I've much like most people, I've seen everything. So I will work very hard at that side of it and I just like commercials that have I've always gravitated toward commercials that have just a little bit of a you know a Tim Burton ankle to them if you will you know I just enjoyed that that kind of semi snarky slightly darker sense of humor um, just because I find it more real you know quite frankly I, I Broader slapsticky stuff, I don't really like. And I, I think that that style has uh, gone away for the most part. Um, back when I first started, a lot of stuff I did, me and everybody else in comedy, everything was a 10 millimeter lens jammed right in the face of the actor. That was what was passed for comedy back then, but <laughs> it was awful. Yeah, so And comedy is, is actually like fashion you know, and comedy changes, comedy changes involves, you know, what was funny two years ago. I mean, if you think back, you know, Jim Carrey was, Jim Carrey was God 20 years ago, right? And, you know, he couldn't get arrested. And it's like, it just depends on what, the mood of the country and, the you know, where everybody, where the world is. You know, I think the classic example is a film like The Hangover, which is inherently a very dark, story but it made a zillion dollars because it's just so bold and funny and you know if you look at you know the kind of humor that was prior to that that was working really well you know anchorman which i love but it's a anchorman is as a kinder gentler funnier brand of humor and i think you know, where our com- country is economically and where the world is you know hangover was just an a ang- career were a violent ass kick of a movie, and it was it, it was it just worked, you know, because that that's where people were. So I think that there's very much a style uh, or a, um, a style and humor, and it and it changes.
0: It's interesting in terms of comedy today that a lot of the popular and exceptional comedies on TV are these, you know, single camera sitcoms that don't have laugh tracks telling you when to laugh and. And I think, as a result, aren't trying to hit you over the head with a lame joke every thirty seconds. The the comedy is more coming from character rather than this need to toss off I, joke you know, after joke. Two and a Half
1: Men is still one of the top comedies, and they are just, they're they they just pound on the laugh track. And to me, that that feels incredibly dated, and yet it's successful. So I think I'll you know also having you know handsome young people and. Just a non-stop stream of TNA jokes appeals to a certain level of uh, level of viewer. Uh, my preference is, you know, stuff that's a little smarter. Yeah,
0: you know, I'm all for uh, dumb comedy sometimes, but from what I've seen of Two and a Half Men, and it hasn't been much, but it 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 makes me feel sad inside. And I don't oh, know yeah. anybody who Massive. actually watches that show, or anybody who knows anybody who watches that show. So, so its popularity, um, I feel, might be uh, a government plot of some sort.
1: That's because you people. don't live in Nebraska. <laughs> That's <laughs> why that I've actually, you know, in my music career and my film career, I've, I've gotten had the the benefit, quite frankly, of shooting in throughout this country, and you know, if not shooting, and definitely touring throughout this country. And once you get out, you know, Chicago, L.A., New York, Dallas, Miami, once you get out of the major hubs, you start to realize, oh, this is what America is. And it isn't what your perception is. You know, you know education, I think if it does anything to a new director, I say, go on a road trip. Travel around this country and find out what your constituency is. Constituency is because if you grew up in Boston and you moved to L.A.,
0: you don't know what the big middle is like. Oh definitely. Definitely. I mean there's a, you know, there's this film critic, uh Pauline Kael who was really big oh, in yeah. the 70s who she she famously wrote this article about how uh, when when Richard Nixon won the election, she's like I, I don't know anybody who would vote for Richard Nixon. You know, right. because Here's amongst Pauline the Kale. the circles that she traveled in, nobody would vote for Richard Nixon. Precisely. Once you
1: get out, you know, once you get outside of the, the big, you know, the big urban centers, uh there's a whole lot of America
0: out there And... And they and like Two and a Half Men. They, they like Two and a Half Men a
1: lot. And, that's, uh, and, and that's, that's where your wake-up call comes.
0: I'm curious about the Sony Killer Instinct online ad that you did. Uh, that's that's one that goes super dark at the end. Uh, spoilers for that ad, everybody, uh, which you can see in the viral section of David's website, Jealousingang.com. The, uh, the ad ends with some hot man-on-man necrophilia action. Yeah, that's good
1: stuff. <laughs> but, but how did
0: how did that happen? Like
1: that what, what was it written by those two guys, Brian Palermo and his partner, and they're both groundlings. That was a sketch that they had done uh, like a couple years back, and they Sony approached them and made a deal with the groundlings and said, we want to buy 50 skits, and uh, you guys need to shoot them. I, I, maybe it's 25. And so Brian... He's a personal friend of mine. He's actually, I don't know if my, you saw my Fog Dog spot. I think it's on my website. But Brian, that guy, the, who's the shark in his spot, is also Fog Dog, the guy in the dog suit hanging off the side of the mountain in Moab. So that's him. So anyway, he approached me and said, look, we want to do this. Uh, are you interested? And I said, sure. So we sat down and sort of went through the script and script, you know. From two years ago, and and we need to sort of tighten it up a little bit and fit within the, the format. And then as we we're and then it sort of uh, figured out how to shoot it and make it make it fun and interesting, sort of in a in, in a little bit bigger of an office setting, incorporating other people. Um, and then <laughs> at the end, I said, What other you know, he, we were talking about the endings of this spy. goes, he goes, Well. Well, it, we did it, it, on stage. They did say the line, uh, "Oh, I could violate his corpse," and I said, "Well, I think that now you have to actually do it." And he said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> so that's where that went, and uh, it, that was one of my prouder moments, actually. Right. But the um, it, it was just a, a classic thing of you know working with really funny, talented people mm-hmm. who. Uh, and we stay right on the script. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, if you ever listen to people talk about comedy, the perception is like, you know, you ask Todd Phillips hey, The Hangover. So, how much was that? It was improv. And it's like, none of it's improv. I mean, very, very little because comedy is fucking hard. So, you have to actually, he, he, they spend a lot of time, you know, first of all, the screenwriter spent a lot of time writing it. And then you rehearse. And any of these sort of ideas that you're going to come up with are going to happen in rehearsal because on the shoot day, it's so pressure-packed. You know, ensure certain things may the lot the actual location may bring certain things comedically out in a scene that you can employ, so you can riff on that, and you can certainly riff on lines. You know, Will Ferrell and Tina Fey and all those guys are brilliant at, at line riffs, but generally, you know. They've already found the funniest version of that before it arrives. And that was sort of the, the same thing that we did with that I did with the spot with Brian. It is the funniest, you know. They tried that sucker on stage and they, they did it on stage for like four weeks. And he said, you know, as we're doing it, he goes, there's a few lines we'll change if we feel it's not hitting hard enough. You know, because obviously audiences are different too. He goes, we would spin it a little darker if it if we felt like it needed it. But yeah, we stayed right to you know, by and large stayed to the script. Uh Michaela Watkins, the girl that gets the coffee thrown in her face, she was uh on SNL. Like we did that and then she got picked up by SNL like for the next season. So she was she was on that for a year. Good for her. But were there any
0: restrictions when you were doing that that spot? Were were there any um or, or were there was there anybody going maybe this is too far or anything anything like that? No,
1: you know. Uh, Sony did take the actual anal rape out of their version, which is <laughs> unfortunate.
0: Shame on them! But yeah, the
1: cowards. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so the they pulled that off, and we kept it on our version. Uh, but that was the only thing, and there was no, there were no, there were no adults in the room during the shoot. Let me just put it that way. And it was kind of, which is kind of nice. The thing is, it was good about Sony is they said, "Look, you guys do what you do." Uh, Presented to us. If we feel like we need to make any changes, we will. They said that to everybody, all the, all the different sort of creative teams, and, and by and large, they, they went with it. Because I think you know, if you look at what's out there today on Funny or Die and all the other channels that are similar to that, it's like you have to be you have to be edgy to retain eyeballs. You just do, because otherwise, it's they'll move on. That's it's just you know people vote with they vote with their with their digits these days and they will just go to something that's more interesting.
0: Oh. Tell me about the uh, the Denny's campaign that you did and, and how that came about.
1: We were approached by Filter Magazine. Stay with me here. So Filter Magazine is like a free music magazine. These guys, and somehow they talked talked Denny's into letting them uh, do a tie-in with bands like green day and whoever so it's like a uh, morning jacket so, so, so they said they said we're going to sort of we know that denny's you know there's a late night constituency that you guys aren't exploiting right this basically the drunk slash stoned 2 a.m denny's clientele is not being served uh, in Which room. is the
0: only Denny's clientele I know, by the way. Because, I mean, who goes to Denny's unless it's you know you're, you're hungry <laughs> at 1 a.m.
1: That's exactly. it. So they said uh, okay. Well, so they got you know these different bands to come in. They shot videos and they would make you know the the, the my morning jacket, uh, 2 a.m. burrito, and and the bands would actually go in and cook these things at a Denny's, and they would make shirts. It's actually a pretty smart little cross promotion. So then they said, well, we want to do a commercial for this. And they approached me and they just kind of had kind of a rough idea about let's, you know, we want a, a dinosaur and a, a unicorn maybe and a leprechaun. And, and I said, I said, and they said both basically these are sort of representations of the stoner, you know, the stoner corn, if you will, who's another groundling. Uh, but these are sort of representations of personality types, you know, the Leprechaun, the deep little bastard, and uh, yeah, the 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 T the, the, the Rex was the stoner. Well, no, the Unicorn is the stoner, and the T Rex is just the overeating, monosyllabic uh, nut job. So, but that was it. So then I got to I sort of wrote a script, and then we wrote a wrote a number of them because uh, they wanted like four. We shot that in one night on, on the Denny's in, on uh, Sunset Boulevard, which is awesome. And, and uh, a couple of things One of the funniest things, that I worked with a, a creature shop building these creatures. So we were on our tech scout, like on, you know, Thursday at four in the afternoon. But I said, we, I need, we need to take the costumes to see how they're gonna work in the environment, at the table. So here you got people sitting at a table and the Denny's is open, by the way. The Denny's is, has, you know, three dozen customers in it and a guy in a Tyrannosaurus outfit and a guy in a unicorn and a leprechaun. And they are not even noticing. That was the awesome part about it. It was like they didn't even give a shit. Then on that night, uh, I started re- and this is one of the few times where I've actually had the opportunity to do this. We had four scripts that we did, and then we started doing outtakes with these guys, and uh, we sort of allowed them to riff, and, it, and we, you know, we generated a lot of additional sort of interesting content for them. Unfortunately, the downside is then shortly after that that uh, Filter and Denny's, you know, the, the, I think Denny's went to a, a, a different ad agency, or the their parent ad agency sort of gobbled up that side of it too. But what this is based on is the rock and roll Denny's that is no longer there, but when I was in a a metal band in the 80s, uh, before I started working for Van Halen, and at Denny's, rock and roll Denny's, at two in the morning, you would have this amazing combination of humans. You would have the punkers, the guys with the Mohawks, you'd have the heavy metal guys, you would have blues musicians it was like this is the it was the only place open at that time and when all the clubs closed you would get this amazing mix of humanity and I and that's when when they first sent me this spot I said and these guys were, actually didn't even know what Rock and Roll Denny's is but if you actually Google Rock and Roll Denny's it'll come up and I said this is what you guys have created is this actual experience uh, that was iconic on the Sunset Strip and uh, so so the whole idea essentially jumped off of that, but <laughs> a ton of fun, really a lot of fun, and uh, one of the most hilarious evenings I've, I've had in the industry.
0: And you can see all these spots at jealousandfilmgang.com, David's website. Uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, the Barbecue's Galore uh, spot. That's
1: a, you know, that, and that kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier. I. Um, my ex-wife, uh, Heather Steitler, who I'm still friends with, she's a creative director at Gray in New York. She was working at YR here in Los Angeles, and she came home, just similar sort of personality to me in terms of dark humor, and she came home and showed me the stuff that he, her and her partner were creating for barbecues galore. And it was really dark and really, I was like, oh, are you guys going to do television? She goes, they can't afford to do television. And I said, well, how much can they afford to do? Because these ideas, we should shoot these ideas. So uh, they went back and she said, oh, they have like 60 grand. I was like, okay. And so her and her partner came up with uh, like eight ideas and I had to battle hard for it. I like pig and chicken the best, and I don't. I don't know if they were totally sold on. There were a couple other that were funny, but I just felt the strongest about pig and chicken. Also, I knew, I knew I could shoot those in one day at one house. You know, one house. A house that has a pool, great exterior, and then you do the pig, pig at night in the interior. So anyway, they, these um, uh, we you know they, the spots got approved. And then I went to my friend, Rick Lazzarini, who owns this place called The Creature Shop. And I said, we have to make a chicken that looks exactly like a chicken that is in a package at a store, but it's got to have a neck hole and it has to talk. And this guy's honestly, he's done the -the jack-in-the-box heads and everything else. I mean, Rick's brilliant. And so uh, he says, okay. And he created this chicken, and it was brilliant. And what you don't see is that we... Uh, he puppete- He was puppeteering the mouth, and his partner was puppeteering the wings. We cut holes on that on that the, that support, that little sort of support station on the grill. And the, and the wide shot, those guys are composited out, but underneath that grill are two huge dudes operating that chicken. And then the chicken's voice is being played by an off-screen actor. And Rick Lazzarini was watching him as he's moving his mouth. And the guy would deliver like you know, Rick, Rick was obviously following the script. So he knew what the guy was going to say. So Rick got so good at it that we started riffing on the lines. And, you know, we started at seven in the morning. Okay. So, you know, we're shooting and shooting and shooting. And it was so funny. And we did ended up doing so much stuff. It was like five o'clock. And we have to stop. We have a whole, we have another commercial to shoot. You know, we're, we're, we're burning all our dollars on this commercial. But it was brilliant because Rick was, Rick was so good at just watching and anticipating what the actor was going to say. He was able to, to match the chicken's mouth movement perfectly and his partner was able to match sort of head pivot and wing movement. Awesome, just love that.
0: I love when the, uh, the actor that the chicken is talking to, when he kind of comes in with the barbecue sauce and just sort of carefully uh, paints oh, yeah. it on him. <laughs> it's just such well, were, a great gesture. They were concerned. They're like,
1: can you actually put it on? as like, And I told Rick, I said, like, make sure you know, we can ladle this stuff on, uh, on the actual chicken and then clean it off so we can do multiple takes. And he goes, no problem. So it, that just adds another element of the macabre to it quite frankly. So that was, that was a ton of fun. And, uh, and the pig, you know, a, the, the rumor about pigs being smarter than dogs is, is a complete and utter lie. Uh, this pig was 400 pounds of stupid and 400 pounds of angry and uh, did not enjoy anything we were doing. And its diet, because it had eaten all day, so it was bored. So the only thing it would respond to was uh, strawberry Twizzlers, the licorice Twizzler. So we were feeding it handfuls of Twizzlers to get it to walk across the floor. So that's, but it was, again.
0: Yeah, yeah and that, that spot's kind of, uh, that's, that's a little bit creepy. I mean, you, you say you're not a horror guy, but. That's- yeah, well that, you know, that is, actually that's one of the spots that the, the people from Fox
1: saw and then they contacted me. They said, "We like what you did. It. <laughs> we have a killer pig script for you. <laughs> you got a murder pig." Well, like, it's yeah. With the, the, my DP, I was like, "I want it to look like, you know, it's part of the shiny, you know, which is if you're going to do a horror movie. I mean, I'll put it this way: I, well done horror, I I enjoy. It's just a, sort of the decapitation, limb removal horror. I'm not a great fan of."
0: Tell me a bit about the Snickers November first spot. It was another one
1: uh, uh, written by my ex-wife and her partner, actually Dave Sakamoto, who's now in uh, BBDO Atlanta. Um, But again, so it's like one of those uh, ideas that, and this, this was spec Snickers was fully spec. And the thing about spec is that I will also advise anybody, although, you know, it's spec for two agency people, Uh, but, but, it needs to stay within sort of the, the tone of whatever the current campaign is. So if you're making a spot, you know, that, uh, you want to, that is spec, it has to feel like it's part of the, you know, part of that world, part of that language and part of that lineage. Cause if you do a spot that's not, it just screams spec. So at that time, Snickers was doing stuff like this, you know, sort of the darker stranger, weirder stuff. And, um, they, they sort of, I uh, uh, forget who came up with the, sort of the initial nugget of the idea, but when I heard it, I went, oh, that's cool. And then I said, oh, we need, you know, the guy needs to hang from the second story window and they're like, oh, wait, are you sure? And I said, yeah, it needs to get, I think it, the idea needs to, to evolve into to the point where it's like life-threatening. And we had to find a house. We found a house in the Adams Adams District district outside of downtown LA that had a really high second floor. And uh, the guy, the actor is a friend of mine named Dan Warner who has been in many, many commercials. And what we did is we used two uh, condors, one for the camera and then one for Dan. And when you see him hanging there, He's actually having to hang his for his own weight because I said we've got to lower the condor all the way down because I want you really to feel like you're actually hanging there. Mm-hmm. And it, every time I see him, he reminds me of it, it, his hands were literally bleeding at the end of the commercial because he was, you know, it, it's a lot of <laughs> that's, that's a lot of time you hang on with some jagged you know eighty year old chunks of wood, um, but we. So we did a lot of a lot of coverage on that. It ended up because I thought I was going to be able to make it a, a, a 60 second idea, and it didn't sustain. And 30 seconds was is, was exactly right. And there's another version where we have a stuntman falling. You see the stuntman actually fall, and we sort of tested it with our group of friends, and they said, "We don't want to see him fall. Just let him stay there." That's like. <laughs> <laughs> That's even more sad. Yeah. Uh, so that was it. And we shot the whole thing, quite frankly, for with my you know, with the friends
0: and family discount for like twelve thousand bucks. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. and, and so what's the what's the impetus behind doing a, a spec spot like that? What what you, are and, you,
1: know, yes. you the idea was too good to pass up. Yeah. You know, and I wanted something uh that would get uh I wanted to do something Halloween-y, which I thought was, you know, it was that time of year. I was like, ah, that'd be fun. And the idea was so good. I was like, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's just do it. And uh, because, like I said, it also fit within their uh, their sort of comedic zeitgeist of the to- at that time.
0: Was the idea ever pitched to-, to Snickers? I'll tell you what's interesting. Dave Sakamoto,
1: who was the art director on that, uh, his next job was on the Snickers account. So, so I think it worked for one of us. <laughs> he never hired me again. That pastor. Uh
0: But when, <laughs> when, when, that idea was being developed, was there ever a? Uh, was that ever going to happen? Was somebody ever going to approach Snickers, or was oh. it purely done as a spec? You
1: know, I. You always think, well, we're going to send it out, which we did. Uh, but because it that wasn't created in house. You know, neither David nor Heather were actually on the account. They just came up with that idea. So, uh, I, I knew we could send it to them, but I knew there wasn't really a shot that they'd end up using it. But,
0: Are there legal issues ever with doing that? I've, I've heard people talk about uh, sometimes was, being – you go ahead.
1: Yes, yeah, I – there have actually – this uh, friend of mine years and years ago did a spec Coke spot. It was really charming and sweet, and he used like the Coke logo. I mean, it looked very much like you know, uh, it looked exactly like a, a Coke commercial would look. And uh, they sued him. They said, "You, go. oh wow, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> thank you very much." They got so much <laughs> negative publicity from it because then this guy went to the media uh, that they kind of backed off of it, but. I could see them complaining if it was... And again, this is pre-YouTube, right? So this was... Uh, but now I think, quite frankly, even with SOPA, there's people are... There's a lot more gray area. You can do a lot of things uh, without any any kind of backlash unless it's incredibly negative. You create a, a spec spot that's, that's... That's actually defamatory, then I think you could get into a little bit of trouble. But... You know, you look at what's on YouTube and Vimeo today and and people are doing, you know, that's how you actually, that's how you know if your commercial works is if people then do spinoffs of it, their own versions on YouTube. They're, you know, the homage collection, if you will. And, uh, you know, if you are a brand, that's the best thing that could possibly happen to you is that imitation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting right now what's going on with the the legality of that kind of stuff. Um, There's a... There's a uh wedding uh videographer that I know of, uh named Joe Simon, who was just recently sued because he did a wedding video, posted it online with a um with a popular song and it oh. went viral. Oh. And he was sued uh for uh for six figures, actually. Oh. And and not not given a cease and desist and, and actually ended up settling for um Somewhere around five figures. I don't know. He, he doesn't say the exact figure, but he, he's he's in, he's talked about an interview. Uh, it's interesting that that's that that's happening now. You know that. I,
1: well, it's it's now in the SOPA and the PIPA yep. stuff that's going on today,
0: which definitely had the, a big hit today, based on what's going on online and all the. Uh, I mean, even Google is in on it. You know, if you go to Google now, it's like uh, Google's redacted. I don't know if oh, good yeah I think,
1: I think we need to do that because this is this level of censorship if allowed to travel unchecked we will end up like China I mean it, yeah. a friend of mine that I DP that I work with uh, spent the last two years in Beijing shooting two movies and he's like yeah you can't get anything over there you know it's it's everything's the happy shiny network and you'll never hear any truth. And I think there are elements within our government with, that would just like it to be that. You know, we don't, we want you to know what we want you to know. We, we don't want a, a, additional opinions in there affecting it. I think, it, it, to me, I think these ideas have less to do with copyright infringement because we have copyright infringement laws in place right now. They're just not, They're very few of them are being applied. Mm. But what this is, is this is a broader a more blanket way to control the net, and consequently, uh, really restrict what we can use and what we can see and what we can do. What what song was it?
0: I'm not positive, but I think it was a Coldplay song. But I'm I'm not positive on that.
1: I'm sure you know, Obviously, you never thought at all that he could possibly be sued for that. Sure. You know, unless he was marking it as his own song. It just you know, it was a. Sort of a sonic enhancement of a wedding video. Yeah. he's a videographer, not a musician. Right. Right. Yep. I think, arguably, if he was a musician and then he put that out as his own song, then sure, you'd have something to say. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Well, they, they, I think their argument is that by putting it out there and getting the attention that he got for it, he's uh, diluting the appeal of the song because you know the more people hear a song, the more they they might get sick of it.
1: Yeah, that never seems to bother anybody in real life that I've seen. You know what I mean? I think that's a specious argument created by lawyers. Yeah, attorneys (laughs) for big companies. When in fact, it's, you know, all you got to do is look at that song Fridays or whatever that had 36 million hits. Yeah. You know, it seemed to work out okay for her. So,
0: yeah. And I bet if
1: they put that song Fridays on a wedding video, she probably wouldn't.
0: So. No, I think it 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 completely depends on on whose uh, you know on what label is uh, is behind it. I mean, it's I, I think it's pretty pretty arbitrary. But I mean, they they did have the the legal you know, they they have, they legally were able to to get him to pay damages. So,
1: which is, that's a cease and desist is one thing. Yeah. It's
0: like you no, know, oops, my bad.
1: I'll put something else on there.
0: I'll I'll send you the article on it because it's a really interesting one. And actually, I think it is a bit of a. Um, it's, it, it, to me, I think it, that's a little bit of a watershed kind of thing because I haven't heard of that happening before.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that was also, that was the shot across the bow. It's like, okay, we're going to show you what we're going to do. And I was like, really, is that how much, is that how assholish you're going to be? But again, I was in the music industry, so I know how these people are. And they are just one sort of layer below pond scum,
0: generally speaking. <laughs> and you directed some some music videos as well, right? I did. I you know,
1: I would be blunt. Uh, I directed four music videos, and I, it, it just reminded me why I got out of the music business. Quite frankly, and I am a musician, and I played in bands, and I'm free to say this. Generally, I find musicians to be. Narcissistic and exhausting to deal with, A. And B, even if they're great, and some of them truly, truly are, the record label people are horrifying and they make you want to kill yourself. So
0: it's (laughs) like, I was like,
1: why am I stepping back into this? Uh, Obviously, you know, as a creative outlet, it's a blast. I mean, back then it was. But, uh, To me, the truth is I really enjoy people talking and saying funny things, and I think you know, from a making a living standpoint, if you can spend your life in a room with really smart funny people saying really smart funny things, then you have chosen well.
0: On that note, David, thank you so much for doing this, I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure entirely, thank you.
0: And that was the fantastic David Jellison. In the coming weeks, in all likelihood, thanks in large part to Jason Wingrove. We'll be featuring the DV Rebel and Renaissance Man, Stu Mashewitz, photographer slash director, Vincent Laforet, commercial director, Paul Schneider, and one of the creators of the Old Spice campaign we discuss in this episode, Eric Kalman. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way please put spodcast in your subject matter thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on swayproductions.com this is ron small saying goodbye